0: Let's hear God's word. James writes, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge? Your neighbor. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep. And wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Your wealth has rotted. Your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Do you ever get an earworm? Do you know what an earworm is? When you get a tune in your head and and, and you can't lose it and it goes round and round and round and round all week. Um, I, I was reading something the other day which gave me Britain's top five earworms. Number one was the Proclaimers 500 miles and then it was Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody and We Are the Champions. Then Dolly Parton, 9 to 5. And then YMCA. Now, sorry folks, one of you is now going to have one of those songs going round in your head all day, aren't they? Or maybe it's a different song. But you know that bit where a tune that you hear haunts show week, and maybe sometimes it happens in church, particularly when we're using one of those annoying modern songs that just keeps grating on your head. Or maybe it's a good way. But here's the question. How do we hear something which will be an earworm and will truly keep coming back to us as we go through the week ahead? How do we come to worship or to read God's word, whether it's together or on our own, in a way that we don't just hear it that once and enjoy it, but it begins to play round our lives day by day by day? And in a sense, that's what James is asking, isn't it? How do we take the truths that we know, the things that we say in worship, the professions that we make, and have them in a way that begins to shape who we are? That we begin to hear all the time, that the tune begins to make the dance. The faith without works, James says, is nothing. Or as Psalm 119 puts it, Keep doing that. I put these slides up there to get them in time. Psalm 119 that we referred to a few weeks ago. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your tune in my ear. Not that it just might annoy me or I might remember it or we might memorize it like we used to do with scripture but actually that it might play back when I'm in situations and shape how I live. Cause that's what James is all around. How do we repeat God's word not just so that we know it, we can win a Bible quiz, but so that we know it in a way that begins to naturally change how we live. And that's James's whole message. He takes for granted the key gospel themes. We will not find them in the book of James. He takes for granted the death and resurrection of Jesus. After all, he was there as his brother was killed on the cross. He came to believe that he was the Messiah when he met him risen from the grave. He doesn't need to say all those things. Yet he's asking Christians, those that are baptized into Jesus, those that believe in him, those that know what he's done for them on the cross, he's asking them, what practical difference does this make to live this out? Faith without words, works is dead, but instead has to ingrain itself into the mindset, the values, and so it's lived out, not just in worship, but in every aspect of life. Now, one of the th- ways that we might look at James is this. We are not atheists. We believe in the gospel. But how do we live as if we are not atheists? How do we live in a different way where we live in this awareness of the God who is there and the God who saves and the God who is part of our lives? Sometimes Christians, if we're quite honest, we might look at our friends and we've got some nice friends who don't believe and we might think, well, we just live the same nice way they do. What difference does it make? I suggested when we started out that even the first line of the book of James where he says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we could forget the rest of the book and just get that one phrase as an earworm as we're living our life and asking the questions about what I do each day and how I live each day, how I pray each day, was that awareness that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will answer so many situations. Well, when we turn to today's passage, At one level, it seems to be a very disjointed part of scripture. First part deals with slander. The second part deals with plans. And the third part deals with money. But I want to suggest that there is a common theme in all of these three areas. And it's this. James is asking one simple question. What difference does it make to approach this as a Christian? What difference does it make if we conduct our relationships, our lives, our affairs, our values in the presence of God? So he starts off with speaking of others. And he starts with brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister judges. And it literally says a brother or a sister. And speaks against the law and judges it. The news this week was rather embarrassing for Boris Johnson, wasn't it? When Dominic Cummings revealed a message that he'd been sent by Boris Johnson about the health secretary, where after a comment, the prime minister responded, he's totally hopeless. Did you see that? I I didn't use, it was a bit stronger than that. Well, shocking actually. But before I do a bit of Boris Johnson bashing, which would be very easy, let me ask this question. Is that behavior of the prime minister as unacceptable as it is, atypical? Many of you have worked in workplaces or you've worked in different places. What do people say about their colleagues behind their back? Have you heard that type of remark? Have you made that type of remark? Let me tell you, because I work in the church, that what people sometimes say to a friend in confidence about another friend is not particularly much more edifying than what the prime minister was saying there. And we do it actually in church all the time in the way that we speak about one another. And sometimes we do it in the most hypocritical of ways. People say things like, I wouldn't want to criticize him, but. Well, no, we shouldn't gossip, but. Please don't repeat what I'm about to say, but. You know, those sort of ways that people do it, and then they speak something. Now, when, 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 when James is speaking here, and the word is... That's translated slander or speaking against. He's not necessarily talking about saying things that are not true about someone. In fact, it's sometimes words that are true. But it's when we we say things about someone, not to their face, but behind their back normally, when we condemn them, when we assume the worst in them, when we when we question their motives, and we do this all the time. That's what he's talking about, to speak evilly of someone to speak in a way that isn't helpful to them but makes you feel a bit superior the rabbis called it the third tongue because they said it slays first of all the speaker and then the one that's spoken about and then the one that's spoken to Paul repeatedly in his letters talks about how slander and evil speech undermines the body of Christ it undermines the church and yet we do it all the time we do it all the time. The Jewish Talmud, here's what the rabbis said there. There is no forgiveness for the slanderer. Gosh, that's a bit tough, isn't it? But then Jesus was very tough. Here's what he said. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to us brother or sister, raka, which is not a nice word, is answerable in court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell, drastic stuff. And James adds, when he's speaking about it, if anyone slanders a brother or sister, he's speaking against the law and judging it. What's this about? Well, when you start to set yourself up as a judge and fault find with another Christian, two things happen first of all you forget who you are you forget that you too are a sinner because the trouble with critical words is what you're actually doing is you're saying and I wouldn't do that I'm better than that when you criticize someone else and you've stopped realizing how far you've fallen short of God's law and you have started to think well I'm better than them I wouldn't do that I'm more godly than they are you see what you're doing and you've missed the point you've missed the point that you stand before God you stand as a sinner under grace you have been forgiven then therefore you forgive you know the second thing you've forgotten is you've forgotten God because what you've done is you've usurped his role as a parent the text here says, brothers or sisters, do not slander brothers or sisters. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them. It says three times it uses the word brother. And you know, the one thing that's common about two brothers speaking ill of each other is they've got a common parent, isn't it? That's why they're brothers or why they're sisters. Let me illustrate it with this little story. A father is walking down the road with his two daughters we'll call them billy and molly to protect the guilty and the two daughters and all the parents here know exactly what i'm talking about here start on at one another and it's usually the elder who starts saying you're not allowed to do that mum tells you not to do that don't scuff your feet you need to do your homework when you get home you know the bossy elder sister, have you been there? Or elder brother maybe in your case? And they start that way. And in each point, what the elder one is doing is making her superiority evident and putting her younger sister in their place. And what actually happens eventually is it goes on that way until dad intervenes and says, you're not her boss and the dad. You been there? You're nodding what's the point the elder sister that is being critical the tongue is guilty of two things one she's doing the younger one down with her own superiority and the second one is she's usurped the parent's role she's acting as if the parent didn't exist she's acting as if she was the boss she was the parent and her moral rules were what was all about This is what James says when he says, when you slander your other Christian friend, you are forgetting that there is one lawgiver, there is one judge who is able to save and destroy. You have lived, as it were, like an atheist. You pretended that there is no parent there, that you are the moral arbiter. And so often we do exactly that, don't we? You're not living up to my standards. You're not doing things the way that I think they should be done. You're, you're breaking the rules that I think you shouldn't break. And I have just made myself the parent, the judge, and God. Now, when we deal with one another, sometimes we will have to say things in love that need said. Sometimes we do need to remember that we are our brother's keeper sometimes that means in love we have to say things that are hard but we do it as brothers and we do it as brothers in awareness of the father the parent and we do it as brothers and sisters that remember what that parent is like that parent yes has a rule and a law but that parent also has mercy and grace and love and is willing to sacrifice himself We are not orphans just relating to one another, but we are children of a father. Think of it this way. You sometimes, have you ever done this? You've started to say something about somebody else. And then the person you're talking to says, that's my cousin you're talking about. Or worse That's my wife you're talking about. Or that's my friend you're talking about. You know, have you seen that sort of situation happening? And suddenly the conversation changes entirely because you suddenly realize that you can't badmouth the person because their lover, their friend, is in the room. And that friend will defend them. The friend will put you in their place. But here is what it is. When we speak about another Christian brother or sister, we need to remember that their lover is always in the room. The one who made them, who shaped them, who gave his life for them is always present. And if we do that, if we live our lives out, and this is back to the theme of James, if we live our lives out in that awareness of God and that awareness of the gospel in every part of our lives, it will change how we treat a brother or sister, wouldn't it? Because the Father is in the room. So that's the first thing. Do we conduct relationships? without awareness of the presence of god or do we conduct them as if we were atheists and orphans second thing is plans here now listen you who say today or tomorrow i will go to the city spend a year there carry out business and make money now the picture here is of a merchant he's got a business plan he's got a time frame he's got an agenda you can see him on the cell phone and the filofax or, 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 or the schedule. He's booking the tickets. He's sorting out the, the, the whole work he's got to make. He's checking the stock market. Everything is in place. Now, James isn't criticizing him for being a merchant or for making plans. Those things can be good. In fact, uh, as I was reading this, I was reminded that um, I was showing a DVD a, a number of years ago about Christians feeling a calling into different areas of work now to give you a bit of context the dvd had been filmed in 2005 and we were showing it in 2008 and that matters because as we were watching the dvd there was a man on it and he said he'd felt the call of god in his life to be a merchant banker and we were watching this dvd just a year after the stock market crash where all the greedy bankers stole all the money. You, you, you remember that whole bit of time, yeah? And of course, when they heard, the, the folk that were listening to this heard of this man saying, I felt the call of God to be a merchant banker, there was a guffaw, <laughs> you know, ha ha ha. And then I stopped and thought, hold on a minute. If we want the banking sector cleaned up to have the highest ethics, do we not want God to call people into that sector with its salt and its light? Do we not want God to call people into politics and business and finance and merchants and journalists in all these areas and bless you who have gone into them and taken that presence of God into those places? Indeed, James would be very much aware that as the gospel was spreading around the world in his day, it was being spread around by the only people who had the money to travel in those days, which was the traders. And as they went from city to city, Aquila and Priscilla and a whole load of other ones, they took the gospel and spread it around the Roman Empire. And as we hear this merchant making his plans, we might easily be listening in ourselves as we make our plans. Maybe not business plans, but we make plans for our holidays and for our house and our mortgage. And we manage our affairs and we plan it all the time. So what's the problem? planning bad no the problem is this the same problem we found in the other chapter that we slip into a practical atheism where we slip into making all these plans with no awareness of the presence of God with no sense of what God's purposes for our lives are about with no sense of where he is leading The man assumes he can do that. It's my life. I can plan. I can have my goals, my agenda. I can use my abilities, my resources, my initiative. I am my own God. And I wonder how many Christians go to church on Sunday and sound just like that on Monday. And we all do it. now there are two specific problems with this first we find in verse 14, it's a very practical problem. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are like mist that is here for a while and then vanishes. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. This is just very practical. Your shares may crash. Your house may burn down. Your health may fall. COVID may happen. (laughs) I had lovely plans about what I was going to do in the first few months here. God had other ones. So just have that awareness that you are in the hands of God. The Bible continually, it says it so many times, it's embarrassing. It it says something that's so very obvious. It says, you're going to die. It says it again and again and again in every book. You know, the the leaves fall off the trees, the, the grass withers. It says it again and again and again. Why is that? Is it people don't know that? Well, no, they do know that in their heads, but they don't live it. They live it as if everything is under their control. You are like a mist that vanishes. Does that mean we shouldn't plan? No, but it means we should do it with the humility. The humility to know that there is only one person who controls the beginning from the end. So don't boast and don't be hubristic about it, but live in an awareness of God and pray as you do that. I was struck just this morning as I looked on social media, by a tweet from an MP. And he was tweeting out about legislation that's about to come to the House of Commons to bring in assisted dying, euthanasia. And he said this, we get to shape every aspect of our life, save this one, our departure from it. We get to shape every aspect of our life. Even our death, says he. No, you don't. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. It is to live our lives in that sense of that trust in the one. That's why we pray, give us today our daily bread. Because I don't need daily bread. I've got a cupboard full of it. No. No, no. You're in God's hands. The humility that comes with that. And the second issue is in verse 15. Instead you ought to say if it's the Lord's will we will live and do this or that. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Verse 15 tells us to say it's the Lord's will. Now I got an email from someone uh, a while back and he was telling me one thing or another. And after every sentence he would put DV. I don't know if you've ever seen that. DV. What earth is this about? Well, divi, I had to look it up, stands for deo valenti, which means God's willing. So he was taking this absolutely literally and after every sentence he would say, God willing, God willing, God willing. Now, I don't think that's what James is talking about at all. It's rather not to punctuate our grammar with God willing, but to punctuate our thinking with God willing. Punctuate our thinking with prayer. We were not coming, having made all our plans and then praying and saying, God bless my plans, but we're actually starting off with saying, What are the values that we have as Christians? What is the calling upon our lives? And we're letting that shape how we live it out. That's how Sunday worship changes daily living until we are not practical atheists. And then the third point here is about money. Money. Now, I hate talking about money. Most ministers do. And and, and the reason we hate talking about money is that when we talk about money, people assume the treasurer has put us up to it because he wants more or she wants more. And, um, you know, we get a bad rap because there are some churches which at this point would say, the credit card number will now appear on the screen if you want to give to our church and support our ministry at that point when we mention money. And if, reflecting back on COVID, one thing that the church perhaps got wrong was that we were concerned about the giving when the churches couldn't meet in this church and the finances of the Church of Scotland, and there was quite an emphasis on that. And perhaps that was a bit insensitive when people were struggling. But here's the thing, Jesus talks about money constantly. There is no other subject that Jesus talks about more than money, and it's not because he wanted it. Bono once said, the singer once said, of a tele-evangelist after money, he said, the God I know ain't short of money, mister. It's not about wanting money. It's about this. Money is a huge part of our lives. We think about it all the time. Our savings, our pensions, are we paid enough? Are we content with what we're paid? Are we got enough? Can we shop enough? Have we got enough? That's why Jesus talks about it. Because it's got to do with our security. It's got to do with the way that we live. It's got to do with our expectations. It's got to do with our hopes. It's got to do with so much. And we get so caught up about it. And Jesus spoke about it all the time. Not because he wanted it or because he particularly wanted to get people to spend it a different way. But because of the heart. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And if God is our heart and our treasure and everything to us. Then it will reflect on what we do with our money. And if it isn't, it's because God is only part of life and we're living as practical atheists. Now, there's a whole load said in this six verses where James deals with it here. And it, in fact, it's so, it's so pushed together, it's so difficult to sort out that you almost think that James is just touching a few buttons because people have heard enough sermons on this already and he's just giving them a wee bit of a reminder. But there's some themes here. One is he says money is ephemeral. Your gold and silver will corrode, he says. Well, actually, that's rubbish chemistry because. I don't think gold and silver do corrode but somebody will correct me about that later but it's great psychology because the whole point is it might as well corrode because you don't know what's going to happen to your bank balance and in any case you can't take it with you. The story that Jesus his brother told wasn't it about the man who built all the warehouses and filled them with things and thought that's me secure that's my future bang he's dead. (laughs) Back to that theme that the bible keeps bringing before us isn't it you're mortal. So the only thing that's certain in life is God. The only thing that's certain in life is God. So look to your creator for your security, not your hoarding of wealth. The second theme that's in this passage is social justice. James talks about the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And here is what that's touching on. I don't think James is actually saying that the Christians in the church have been oppressing their workers although perhaps he's getting them to think about that but it's much more than that it's to say this if you are about what's on God's heart when it comes to money what's on God's heart God cares for the poor with a passion we know that from every part of the Bible fairness and justice and social justice aren't just a theme of some woke preacher somewhere they scream from every part of scripture from Leviticus to the prophets to the words of Jesus to the commands and acts to look after the poor and time and time and time it goes And what does that mean practically for us? That if we're going to live with this awareness of God in the decisions that we make, that it will become second nature. That as we shop, we're thinking about how that impacts on other people. If you're in business, you're going to be thinking about the wages that you pay. Now, he's not telling you don't shop at Amazon because they don't pay enough wages or anything like that. He's just telling you that these things matter to God. They're on God's heart, that sense of justice. And therefore, if you are someone aware of God's presence as you live your life, they will matter to you. There's no prescription here about whether to be left-wing or right-wing or whatever it is, but it's just to have that awareness of what matters to God. And the other theme that's here is, is judgment. God will judge. God's judgment on injustice in that day that will come. Now, as Christians, we know that we do not have to fear judgment because Christ has died for our sins and we are forgiven. And that promise that we will be safe through the judgment. But one of the dangers with that is that we have slipped into an atheistic mindset that simply says, God doesn't care. One of the things that judgment tells us is not just the fear of judgment, but it's that sense of that God whose heart breaks for justice in the world. Of that God who says our actions have consequences and must have consequences because he loves us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom where we actually have that holy sense of reverence for God's holy law and God's presence and God's power as we live our lives under him. That we know that one day all acts will be called into the light and they will be seen. And that isn't about having a fear. It's about knowing that God that we love and we treasure and we, whose mercy we celebrate. But we care. We care. We care. About his pleasure. We care about the things that are on his heart as we live our lives. I wonder as James talks about this. And he talks about that sort of judgment and that sense of the poor. That he's got an earworm. For a song. Maybe a song his mother sang. Remember his mother Mary. What was her song when she knew the presence of God in the angel Gabriel. It was in the words of the Magnificat wasn't it. He has pulled down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. If that is the earworm from the presence of God, because that's what's on God's heart as you live your life, how can that not transform what you do with money and your attitude to it? Here is the invitation, I think, in these verses. Not just to let our Christian worship shape our values so that as we go through the week ahead, we don't say bad things or don't make evil plans, don't oppress the poor. But it's more than that. We go into a week aware of the presence of the Lord who said, draw close to me and I will draw close to you. That we go into that week allowing that to shape our relationships and our actions and our words until what's on our heart instinctively is what's on God's heart. His mercy, his love, his care. So that we speak remembering that he hears. So that we plan submitting to his will. So that we spend in ways that honour him. James doesn't simply want us not to do bad things. He wants us to live in the daily, in the presence and the power of God. James is about life because Jesus came not just for Sundays but for all of life he came to redeem our relationships and where they're broken to bring healing he came to explain to us God's perfect will that we might be called to follow him and that might be our will in everything that we do he came to be our greatest treasure and security that come what may we would put our trust in him. And when we grasp that love that Jesus has for all of our lives. Then we pray God be in every part of my life. And Andrew is going to lead us as we just reflect on that in the words of a song.